Hello, Free Money family. Sloan here, and I'm pumped to bring you another awesome conversation. This week, we're joined by Anne-Marie Florby, a managing director at the Cambridge University Endowment who's in charge of their public equities portfolio. What are we talking about? Long-term investing. Specifically, what the heck is it? And how do you know you're doing it? How is it different from that thing that happens when you make an investment and it doesn't work out quite the way that you expect, and then all of a sudden you find yourself rationalizing, well, I'm a long-term investor. I'll wait until my thesis proves true. We zoom in on the real stuff and examine closely how adopting an identity as a long-term investor affects the way that you relate to the rest of the investment community, determines what you focus on, and colors the way that you evaluate performance. We also zoom in on the all-important distinction between asset managers and asset owners with regard to doing the long-term stuff. Because where you sit in the industry affects what you see, and that's super material. And of course, we close our conversation with Anne-Marie by talking about the great work she's doing by helping young women enter the investment industry as a co-founder of Girls Are Investors. Uh, then the, at the back end of the show, as always, we talk about what we're working on right now and what's hard about it, what, we're, what challenges we're facing. We also take questions from listeners, which you can ask us at your convenience by emailing freemoneypod at gmail.com. And, you know, in closing, I want to say that whether you're new to the podcast or you're just getting started, the time you spend with us is so meaningful. Um, because we love you extra special much, stick around until the end for an honest-to-goodness gardening tip that you can put to work today. Oh, yeah. And don't forget to tell your friends about us on Twitter. Leave us nice reviews. And maybe even do something nice for a random stranger today just because it's a good idea. I'll catch you all on the other side of the disclosure. Take it away, Sharkbait. Ahoy, free money podcast listeners. I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate, and I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own, and do nay reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Invest Vegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted, and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's where we bring you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. Um, welcome. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's another you do episode. crave it. And I, Sloan, I've been thinking hard about this. I would be willing to wager actual uh, money, even NFTs and things, mm -hmm. um, that we're the number one podcast on earth that helps you, the listener, understand institutional investment landscape while also helping you understand how to landscape your backyard. Yeah. 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 And, and honestly, I, you know, I think we both agree that that's a glaring omission in the podcast landscape. Yeah. You know, um, find me another one that will like teach you how to invest and plant plants at the same time. That's better than us. Yeah. Like what, and, what explains the industry's silence on this matter? 
both are about long-term planning. I don't get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I do really, I mean, I, I just published a freaking blog post about, uh, you know, investment insights from the compost pile because I am a... Oh, like, like you're taking this theme into your writing now. I this am a beautiful. mockery of myself. <laughs> it's amazing. I also am writing a book called Organic Finance just to really close the loop on it. Mm. So here we go. <laughs> By the way, Sloan, there's going to be no technical difficulties today, I predict. Really? I do. Huh. And I also wanted to say that I want to create our first free money NFT based on John Bowman complaining about his audio not working <laughs> and getting increasingly animated and angry and you and i just sitting there laughing at him last week <laughs> it was this like delightful I, I was on the podcast so i knew what to expect but when i was re-listening oh, i found yeah. myself absolutely dying I, yeah. listening to that segment like you know when when you hear from listeners that some of the best parts of your podcast are when the technology doesn't work you know you're like all right is that is that like a dig, yeah. you know, but. Well, I think people realize in those moments that this is truly not planned, mm -hmm. you know, because like, it's like we, we kind of keep our cool because everything is surprised us, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, no, but like, and then I, I, I literally died when he, he was, you know, he's like grumbling. He's like. And then he, yeah, he didn't know that we could hear him. And so he was getting increasingly crabby. And, oh. and then he joins and he's like, Ashbury, are you already drinking? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> anyway, if we're ever going to do an NFT based on, if somebody can do an NFT based on a dunk, yep. we can do an NFT based on that moment. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a good point. And I, I think, like, it's time for us to to get get as sketchy as possible in terms of business. It models, is. You know? I think we should SPAC our NFT model <laughs> and then, you know, I don't even know what else we can do that's sketchy, but that's enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we'll lever it up. We'll lever it up, obviously. Let's leverage. <laughs> All right. Speaking of... Leverage, which made mm. me think of some news that I oh. wasn't going to include, mm. which, I, which I'll quickly include, which is CalPERS is going to use Leverage. Leverage. official, <laughs> a.k.a. you might have heard of it as Leverage, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is they're going to issue some debt to juice their returns at the portfolio level, which is something many of the Canadian plans do and many plans around the world to kind of distribute risk a little bit better rather than relying on leverage in your infrastructure and private equity book. Why not use leverage in your public equity book or to juice up some fixed income returns if you think the risk return profile is particularly appealing? Well, CalPERS is going to take a shot at that, mm -hmm. and uh, they've taken a lot of flack, but personally, I think it's probably fine. Yeah, it's probably I, smart. You know, th that reminds me of a paper that the homies at AQR uh, did uh, maybe like 2013 or 14 called Chasing Warren Buffett's Alpha, um, where they like they kind of decomposed it into, and I'm, I hope I get this right, um, into three main sources, right? Like obviously Buffett's a pretty good stock picker, um, yep. you know, but then obviously there's like insurance, which is a source of leverage. Cheap cost of capital. Cheap cost of capital, right? And so one of the big takeaways is that they, um, they basically argue that Buffett's track record is attributable in large part to a 1.3 to one leverage ratio that's roughly consistent over the course of his Interesting. career. Um, you know, and like, and, and that seems like about right in terms of a leverage ratio that's like not going to burn the house down, um, you know, and is manageable. Uh, yep. I don't know how much CalPERS is putting on, but. 
I don't think they have. It's probably defined in the news, but I didn't read it close enough. Sick. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you know how we plan. <laughs> More news for you, Sloan. Mm-hmm. This one is going to knock your socks down. Wow. Not off. Not off all the way. I'm not even wearing not- them. So, like, I mean, okay. they're, they're going to fall down in my closet <laughs> onto the ground. This, this news is going to make you pull your socks back up a little bit. They're going <laughs> to fall down around your ankles. Um, this I actually thought was a little bit crazy. So, Angela Rodell, who I'm I'm friendly with, she's the CEO of the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, or was Ooh. until yesterday, when the news came out that the board had said they were launching a new um, CEO process. There's no comments from the board or from staff about why Angela was let go. And it's pretty crazy. The quotes out this morning from different people in the legislature are like, what the hell's going on? Like pretty, pretty aggressive. Huh. Um, yeah, because the, the fund has been killing it for five years. And so I was like, actually, it's pretty crazy. Like the, the board is filled with political appointees. Yep. The CEO has been overseeing like an amazing track of performance. What the hell is going on? Why would they suddenly and like, pretty like let's call it rude yeah uh, in a rude way like firing a ceo this sounds like a demonstration yeah yes it has that vibe and i think it probably now we're getting into our conspiratorial um you know this is where we're right after this we're going to sell some some uh some powdered beverages uh <laughs> <laughs> is back baby Ephanon. <laughs> we're back here's my Ephanon. here's my Ephanon. um do you remember that Mike Dunleavy, the governor of um, Alaska, forgot or failed to veto a $4 billion transfer to the Alaska Permanent Fund this year? <laughs> Do you remember that? I did not remember that, no. Okay. Mike Dunleavy screwed up. He was supposed to veto this $4 billion transfer because he had plans for it in the budget. Forgot. And the legislature didn't let him change his veto. So literally $4 billion ended up in the Alaska Permanent Fund protected pool that was not intended by the governor. And so what I can imagine happening is, let's just picture, you buy mistakenly wire to your friend's account $4 billion. You probably are like, oh man, I can't get that back. Can I can, yeah, can influence I... how you invest it? <laughs> can I influence how you invest my $4 billion I buy mistakenly gave you? <laughs> Um, and, and the reason I suggest there's some political intrigue going on here is, um, the lone vote for Angela on the board came from an appointee from governor Bill Walker, the prior governor, and the votes to oust her came entirely from those appointed by governor Mike Dunleavy, who's the same dude who like screwed up the veto. So that's the political intrigue Hmm. du jour in Alaska. Hmm. I, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I love to cover my tracks when I accidentally overfund my uh, my pension tr- plan by uh, by firing the person responsible for investing it. Like, that's really responsible. Yeah. Like when we see that the Alaska Permanent Fund is launching a four billion dollar inward investment program for infrastructure, <laughs> like like we'll we'll know what's going on. Yeah. Like, I mean, and you know, and, and this is just like when we talk about governance as a source of uh, outperformance here, I mean, like, oh, gosh, it's almost like there's really something yeah. to that. Oh, there is. <laughs> and that's why so many organizations around the world are like, let's do double arm's length governance yep. structures so the politicians can't influence the investments, yada, yada, yada. Um, this is the opposite of that. 
Yeah. I think. Yeah. So it, I've got some more good news. Mm. For fascinating news. I know we don't do a lot of good news on this show. This <laughs> is good like, news. So, I don't know. I know we don't do good news here, but I've got But some. we're going to do some today, Sloan. Um, this, this topic is about insourcing. I have two quick hits on mm. insourcing, which for those that are new to the world of institutional investment means taking the capital back from your external managers and managing it in-house, yep. like picking things to invest in directly rather than giving your money to an external asset manager. Well, CEM Benchmarking has just put out a review of 300 funds, and they have found that insourcing leads to both gross and net outperformance on average. Hmm. And that all institutional investors seem to have a risk return advantage after internalizing some of their um, investment functions. Hmm. Do they quantify the size of that? They may have. But once again, Sloan, <laughs> we don't completely do all the homework when we do the news. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I, like I was more, <laughs> I was more interested because I'll tell you, Sloan, I wrote a paper in 2012 on insourcing principles and policies for internalizing asset management. And so I can tell you one of those 300 funds probably used my model. Mm. I can guarantee it. In fact, I worked with them. <laughs> um, and so I think I can uh, attribute a little bit of that performance to the work I did. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, I mean, this is time for a hair flip, you know. Uh, yeah. So this is flipping around. <laughs> we don't have the video. Um, but really the purpose was like to build to this next moment. Okay. Mm. Because let's be honest, those are just passing colors. Yeah. They're not flying yet. They're not flying colors. Mm -hmm. Flying colors would require that like, not only does it drive out performance, it delivers some monumental impact to the world. That's the free money philosophy. Let's unlock the capital. Okay. Another study about insourcing came out this week. This one from Australia, a new white paper from future impact, which is, I think is a think tank, mm -hmm. didn't do the research, but it's uh, what they're finding is that insourcing also drives more gender equality in investment teams huh. and that the consolidation of super funds in Australia and the um, internalization of asset management that tends to come with consolidation is now driving more gender equality on teams. And to me, that makes sense yep. because you are shifting the search for alpha from kind of short horizon month to month things where, you know, maybe it's more algorithmic towards longer horizon strategies where you could end up having, you know, longer horizon, harder to quantify issues. And so in there you want diversity of thought. You want to begin to build a resilient portfolio. And so being long term really does require having more diversity of thought, which means having more women, more people of color, all the good stuff that I think we're fighting for on the podcast. So yeah. insourcing may be flying colors now, not just passing colors. That I mean, that's awesome. And, and you know, it, at the very least, right, it takes like the staffing decision, like, you know, tons and tons of folks are like, okay, well, we influence our asset managers to do this, that, and the other thing, you know, actually being the asset manager means, you know, takes a level of the influence out of it, uh, right? I guess a, a right. level of the complexity out of it. Um, yeah, as a last thought, if you're long-term, you're looking out, you know, 30 years into the future, wondering if you're going to deliver the promise. If you're an asset manager and you're short, you're worried the 
you know, your asset owner is going to take your money back. You're like, I can't think about those things. I have to think about the month to month performance. Otherwise, they're going to take my money. <laughs> you know, and we've you got know? a great person lined up to talk to talk about that uh, in the waiting room right now. Why don't let's. Uh, oh, my gosh. Let's go ahead. This and is in. this sounds planned. This sounds, this sounds planned. like I planned the news. It's almost like we have calendar invites. We recorded it at an unusual <laughs> time. Uh, we have Anne Marie from Cambridge University uh, joining us right now. Hey, Anne-Marie. Hi. 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 Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Good to see you, Anne-Marie. Welcome. Welcome, Anne-Marie, from Cambridge University, running the Public Equities Program. And we're just so pumped to have you to talk about long-term investing. Yeah. I'm so happy to be here. We we, we were just geeking out about some developments in the the sort of insourcing space. Uh, You know, but I wonder, like, you know, just as a a way of, like, starting us off, you know, um, like, a lot of the time, you know, people who call themselves long-term investors sort of become long-term investors after a trade goes against them, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, where like it, it, at the beginning, it's like, oh, everything's rosy and great. And then, you know, negative development. It's like, well, I'm a long-term investor. Um, what to you is the material distinction between that and like the useful sort of stuff that you hold yourselves to? Yeah, no, well, listen, and first of all, it's really, really great to be here and extend the, the, the reach from the Bay Area in Brooklyn to Britain over here. So <laughs> thanks for awesome. having me on. Um, but yeah, listen, and I think there's obviously there's more than one way to define kind of useful long-term investing, but, um, so I'll speak from my own experience, which, um, I, I wish I could say has come from sitting at the knee of some brilliant guru, like, Buffett, but has really been born more out of my many, many mistakes I've made over the course of my career. And what those have taught me and, and what I think is really at the heart of long-term investing, a successful long-term investing, at least in my view, is um, having a really disciplined approach to one's process. And I'll explain a little bit of what I mean by that. And, you know, I, I consider myself a GARP investor. So someone, and, and, you know, for the most part, that's been for the last 20 years, that's been an equity investing. And what that looks like is buying an, an equity where I've done an enormous amount of due diligence. Like I've got to know the business model. I've understood the competitive landscape. I understand the company's growth and profit drivers. I've flexed them up and down to understand what the valuation might look like over the long term. And I also spend a lot of time trying to get to know the senior management and the boards of directors if I'm able to. And I spend an enormous amount of time understanding incentives because I guarantee you if a manager's, a senior manager is being incentivized on a quarterly basis, they're probably not thinking about what's important to the company in the next 10 to 20 years. So all of this is to say that it takes an enormous amount of diligence and, and frankly, a lot of time up front to making, before making an investment and then being really, really patient and disciplined on and hoping I get a window where the pricing of the asset provides me with sufficient returns to make the investing worthwhile. And well, I think all of that is super important. And I think buying well is one part of the story. I often actually think it's the easiest part. And the monitoring, like monitoring my positions against my initial investment thesis is also a really essential step to my process. And frequently revisiting and testing what's going on in the company and the share price versus what I thought might happen is, is really critical in maintaining my intellectual honesty. And I say that's super important because as much as I see investors getting into things wrong because they're either investing in things that they 
don't understand or where they haven't done the work. I also see people losing money because they just don't maintain proper cell discipline. And, 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 you know, that is not saying like, Hey, I really like this investment because, you know, I thought the management was going to do this when they allocate capital and, and now they're doing something else. And I, I really need to rethink what they're, whether this still sits well with me. People just tend to kind of put things in the portfolio and then oftentimes forget about it and, and really don't stick to a hard and fast cell discipline. And so, you know, I, I think that monitoring process and the cell discipline is just as important as the rigor on the way in. And, and I really think that's the key differentiator between like a good long, like a good long-term investor and somebody who's like a long-term investor because maybe they just didn't do the work and they got in and they invested unwisely. And now they're just stuck with something that they really don't want to be in. So that's a really long answer, but I hope no, I love it. that gives you a little it, gives, it, it definitely gives a lot of context. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like a lot of that homework and discipline is it, it like gives you ammunition when your board shows up and is like, why are you holding this? You know, like, shouldn't we be selling this? A lot of that is like, no, 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 no. we've done the homework, like trust us. Um, and that kind of Absolutely. goes to this, like, you're kind of alone in some of those conversations, you know, ultimately somebody's going to put their name on that, you know, investment memo or that, that investment decision. And so I think a lot of people think of long-term investing as a bit of a solitary exercise. Like if you think of Buffett, you know, um, yes, he's got Munger, but you, you know, Berkshire's out there in Omaha and, you know, people <laughs> often have this legend of like, oh no, he's out in Omaha. He doesn't have the noise of all the people, you know, and all the information yeah. flows, and so like in your mind, is long-term investing like a solitary activity or is it, you know, something that like is facilitated with community? Like give us a view of like that, that independent lone wolf, you know, view. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I, I think it's a really interesting question because I, you know, there are people and there's legends of people who can kind of sit in an ivory tower and can be really successful, fantastic long-term investors and with no input from anybody else, but I'm, I really like talking to other people and, um, I like to test my thesis, you know, either where I might be right or where I might be wrong. And, 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 and of course to do my job really well, I have to take risk and I have to invest where the crowds aren't. And I need to have the deep courage of my own convictions to believe that eventually everybody else is going to think the way I think, but in, but really it's, that's not about sealing myself away from the rest of the world, but it's more about actually doing my homework and, and having the data and having my thesis laid out really well. And that comes back to the, what I was just talking about in terms of doing the diligence and constantly monitoring things. But, you know, really to test my thesis, I find it so important to get lots of different voices, people who agree with me. Yeah. But a lots and lots of people who don't. Because, you know, I think that's the only way I can really flesh out all the holes in, in whatever thesis it is, either buying a stock or investing with a manager, because um, I, I think that, that that robust process is the same in many respects. That makes so much sense. I mean, like, I, I think, like, you know, as much as I would love to to think that I could just, like, install a drippy pipe here in my office in Brooklyn and and, like, come up with, like, 
you know, great, uh, you know, insights by like sitting under here in, in obscurity, um, you know, har <laughs> like hard, hard to do that on your own. Just right? have hard the wisdom come to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I, I think that, that, that really the wisdom comes from deprivation, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and being out like, I mean, the more miserable your context while you're doing the analysis, obviously the better the analysis winds up being, um, you know, but but I'm curious, like, you know, you've been on a couple of different sides of this. Right. Um, and, you know, I, you know, for, uh, you know, a lot of investors. Right. You know, individual investors, it's, you know, mostly about self-discipline. But, um, you know, you've been working as an asset manager and now as an asset owner. And I'm curious, like how the way that you've approached this task has changed as you move from one side to the other. Yeah, I think in. It's interesting. I, I, I do think about any kind of, there's a couple of ways I can answer this, but it, 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 and I, I do think about investing as kind of a, a wheel of, you know, idea generation, due diligence, sizing appropriately and monitoring and then sell discipline. And then that, that wheel, that investment wheel kind of goes round and round. And I think that's applicable for equities or debt or private equity, but also uh, as an investment, as an asset owner, investing with asset managers. So I, I think the process, and I, I am a little bit of a process freak, but I think the process is the same irrespective of the asset class that you're looking at. But what, what you're talking about in terms of like the different viewpoints from being an asset owner and an asset manager, I think is a really important one. And I, I think it's even more important when we start to think about things like addressing big issues like climate change, because in and again, tying in the long-term investment part of thing is I've had the, as you say, I've had the great privilege of investing on behalf of two institutions with incredibly long-term investment horizons. The first being GIC, the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund, where I was an equity portfolio manager for 12 years. And now at the University of Cambridge, where I'm an asset allocator looking at investing in funds via third-party managers. And for both those institutions, the investment horizon can be decades, if not longer. And I mean, the university has been around for more than 800 years and, and we hope that we'll, it will continue to be around wow. for another 800 years at least. Right. <laughs> and, and so that means in practice, what we're investing for is generations, you know, many, many generations to come. And, um, I think one of the things we try to, um, take advantage of in terms of that long-term investment horizon is when we adopted our sustainable investment strategy in October of 2020, um, where we've said that our aim is to bring the Cambridge University Endowment Fund, we call it the QF, but to bring the QF to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2038 through a strategy of investing in a way that aligns with, um, the transition to clean energy, but also engaging with our investment managers who for the most part have multi-year time horizons and then reporting back to our stakeholders. And, and I think that that middle prong, that engagement prong is the most important and most impactful part of our strategy because many of the investment managers that we invest with um they're, 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 they're really, we don't want them just to exclude assets from their portfolios. We actually want them to decarbonize across the entire economy. And so, although they have multi-year time horizons and many of them are already thinking about the business and financial risks associated with climate change, they just, because they're small boutiques they, and they don't have huge responsible investing departments, they simply just don't know how to approach this from a portfolio perspective. And so what we're, we're trying to do as 
long-term asset allocators working with long-term investment managers is we're trying to tap into the wider resources of the university to help educate our managers so and to help them find answers for how they can decarbonize not just by you know not owning oil companies but by decarbonize decarbonizing across the whole portfolio and i think that partnership of asset owners thinking long-term and working with asset managers who are genuinely also long-term. I think that's a really, really powerful combination. And, and, and yeah, we're really excited about what we're doing. I love how you just like, you can casually be like, we take an 800 year view, (laughs) you know, like I remember when Canada pension plan was like, we take a 75 year view and everybody was like, what? That's nuts. Like, right. I think you should just mix it into your like little chats. Like, oh yeah, so we're managing out 800 years. So we're thinking about a lot of things like living on Mars and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like asteroid mining, like exactly. Yeah. We're managing risks you can't even think of. Sorry, go ask for Ask about the governance docs for the, for the endowment. And, you know, it's like, well, the endowment, the university was founded in 1209. So <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Um, speaking of long time horizons, you know, uh, I think what I hear from you and like what it is to be a good long-term investor is a lot of discipline and process and making sure you get the inputs right. And, and I think that is a really powerful framework, but I know that people are still kind of looking to some form of calibration at some point. Like how do I calibrate my investment model, the discipline? And so what we've done a lot of work at Stanford as an academic, like, what are those intermediate outputs, not performance, but like something else that we can begin mm. to think like, oh, our, we're on track. And so I think f- the question I have for you is really like, how long do we need to wait before we know if we're doing this right? You know, is it five years? Is it 10 years? Is it four months? And so in that vein, like, do you have these intermediate outputs that you look to as mm. you're kind of putting together a long strategy to figure out, is it working? Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a great question because we're all like super impatient. We want, you know, we want to know that we're winning right now, right? And um, totally. I think um, I, this is a tough one for me. I, I don't have a really, um, I, I don't have a like a, a black and white answer for this one because I, I, I think, yeah. you know, I think, you know, you could just say, well, the long term is just a series of short terms, right? But, you know, I, and, but I, you know, in terms of performance, and I think you're asking a question that's, really multifaceted. It's like, there's obviously the performance related issue, which, um, you know, and I think on a performance basis, I personally think you need to be able to look through an economic cycle, but then you could say, well, we haven't had a proper economic cycle cycle for 12 years, given what's going on in the, you know, with central banks and free money and hashtag free money. But, yeah, our, and, our free money. podcast has been yeah, very sorry. influential. <laughs> I just I, dropped I, that I, in on <laughs> Sorry. There you go. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I think the, the, you know, so I think if you say, okay, well, then you can't have a clear economic cycle, then, okay, well, I think realistically, you kind of need to, I do think you need to look at things on a one year basis just to kind of have a track. But, um, I, I think what we look at at the endowment and what previous employer, my previous employer, we looked at internally when we were trying to measure success was, you know, we looked at things on a one year basis. Yes. But, you know, three, five, seven, 10 as well. And I think the reality is I think a five year number is a good number to start at. And, you know, I think a 10 year number is probably more realistic, but the reality is the life cycle of a, of a fund manager is, you know, for most people, they don't sit in the chair longer than 
five years. So right. um, it, it gets really complicated. So, you know, on the performance aspect, I think five years is a good place to start, but you know, really, really happy to, to be well, One quick follow-up before Sloan asks you the, the last question here is like, I can remember working on these projects and there's two com competing themes. One is like the outward reporting and, and there, I think GIC does a 20 year average. Yep. And so like the real nerdy analysts like me were like, Oh, the 20 year average changed. So, so like some number dropped off at the back, some number went up and you're starting to figure out like what their performance was, the more years you're tracking. Mm -hmm. Um, cause you can actually kind of figure it out. But, but then the internal thing, like five years, really seven years is the most you can kind of incent people internally mm -hmm. through like labor contracts. And I remember maybe it was Omer's was trying to do like shadow carry and, you know, but really it was like a mix of short-term incentive plans and long-term incentive plans. And the LTIP usually only went four years. So it's very hard to design actual like incentives for the internal staff, even if you're reporting out a 20 year blend beyond that five year. And I'm wondering yeah. if that's like, that was your experience that you just didn't, you didn't incentivize people beyond that. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, I think, you know, again, and it, it's a previous employer, so you know, it, it was a fantastic place to be, and you know, I think that that it has a great um, track record of keeping people. So you know, you can actually see people measured on a multi multi year basis, which is wonderful in in many respects. But I think if you look at that quite average fund manager on in the market, you know, it's it's not common to see people sitting in the same seat for five to 10 to 20 years. So it becomes much more difficult. I, I think, you know, I, I'd love to see the incentives, you know, and I'll speak to like the managers in our portfolio. I, I'd love to see all of their incentives on a, at least a rolling three years. You know, and frankly, at minimum is what I'd like to see is a three-year basis, ideally a five-year where they've got some skin in the game over that period. So I, I think it's, yeah, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's a, it, having that alignment of incentives is, is so important, but it, it, we also have to be realistic that people just, you know, it, it oftentimes don't stick around that long. Yeah. And well, tough one. Well, and like, you know, the, the, the market for like investment management talent is so noisy and search costs are so high. Um, and like the, the challenge of even getting the right people into the seat is so significant um that like it's you know once you have them in the seat it's like you know time to take a victory lap almost um you know and like i i, I note like with some interest that you know you and your colleague at uh cambridge endowment are you know have started this nonprofit group that is trying to bring more women into the investment profession which is uh you know pretty desperately needed um you know because uh, yeah, for whatever reason uh people tend to see femme folks uh you know at investment conferences and think we're there to do marketing uh yep <laughs> you know oh it's the ir yeah yeah exactly oh hey cool yeah. it's an ir chick right. great wow yeah. um you know ha like how do you know that you're making progress on that count like i mean how do you think about your activities as an advocate for diversity in the, in the investment profession yeah I, you know i think it was so important that you, you it's so important to us that we to do this. And I, I think, um, you know, I'll give you the background that, that charity is called Girls Are Investors. And it was set up by Tilly Franklin, who Sloan, as you point out, is my boss at the endowment. And, 
And it was set up by her and um, Charlotte Young, who is at Troy Asset Management, Troy Asset Management, and then Caroline Holtman, who had been working with Tilly at, at Alta Advisors at, at their previous firm. And um, the four of us were all professional investors, and we were all at the time, um, and, and frankly, independent of one another, really frustrated at the fact that so few young women apply to graduate investment management roles. And we were, we had a really hard time finding data to prove it, but the data that we could find and the anecdotal evidence that we kind of compiled suggested that the application rate, and this is in the UK, so it might not necessarily be true in New York or San Francisco or, or, or Tokyo or, you know, Hong Kong or wherever, but in the UK and the application rates by young women into investing roles was less than 20%. And we just thought, how are we meant to address the fact that less than 10% of senior investors are women, let alone, you know, the, the number of funds that are actually genuinely controlled by women, that less than 10% of senior investors are women. If we can't get more than 20% of the applications, you know, being women at the, at the starting level. And so, um, what, what we started doing is we started, we started by going out in person to the equivalent of juniors and seniors in high schools here in wow. the UK. Wow. And, we made it mandatory for the whole class. So it was the whole junior year class or the whole senior year class. And we'd say that everybody had to come and we would provide a really senior experienced or, or maybe not necessarily senior, but we ex bring in a, like a really um, experienced investor, a female investor to just talk about what she does and, and to explain like what we do and what an incredibly interesting and rewarding and exciting career investment management can genuinely be. And what we found in those in-person talks, and obviously this is before the first lockdowns, but what we found in those talks was that most of these young girls had, had never even heard of investment management as a career. You know, so they, they just, they didn't even think about it as, as it wasn't in their, in their, on their radar, let alone something that they thought, oh, this is something I'd be really interested in doing. And so hopefully by giving them real life role models, we, we can inspire them to at least consider it. Um, and, you know, there's a whole lot of other, you know, a lot of misconceptions that these young girls had. We found that they thought that investment management and investment banking were the same thing, which of course they're not. Yeah. They thought that investment managers were like um, all men, which you know, if they knew what investment management was, they thought they were all men, which of course they're not. And they, if they thought that, you know, even if they thought that they were men and women, they thought that they, they were super, super greedy and only out for themselves, which again, you know, the whole rise of sustainable investing shows that that's not true. And so we were trying to just say, okay, here's some role models and let's blow some of these misconceptions that you have about investment management out of the water. And if, you know, if, if you know, maybe it's the right career path for them, or maybe it's not, but if nothing else, hopefully we can at least plant the seed that investing's not not this boring, scary, incomprehensible thing, but it could actually be really fun and creative and super rewarding. And obviously our long-term goal is to ensure that the investment management industry looks like the people on whose behalf those assets are being invested and, you know, be that yeah. gender, be that ethnicity or whatever. But, you know, in the medium term, our goal is to have women making up at least 50% of the applications into investment specific roles. So risk taking roles. Um, and I think we're making progress. There was a great article. I'm sure you saw it last week on Bloomberg about like the recent wave of hedge funds that are being launched by women. But, I did. you know, I think there's still a long, long way to go. 
I mean, and we do, had. A, oh, go ahead. Oh, do, I mean, do, do you find like? Because I, I know you know your team is pretty diverse uh, at Cambridge, and you know, I, I as I sort of think about this from you know my own like burgeoning empire here at Invest Vegan, um, like my like the sort of pipeline of people who I might hire um, as analysts or whatever um, is overwhelmingly like trans women who have slid into my DMs on Twitter uh, and are like, you're really struggling to find like 60K your journalism jobs. And, you know, and like, I, I sort of look at that from, you know, the standpoint of, oh gosh, what a crazy advantage I get, uh, you know, by being able to like, just have contact with those people. I mean, like, have you, yeah. have you seen a direct flow through, you know, obviously the goal of 50% of applicants, you know, is, is probably a long way off, but have you seen a direct flow through from, you know, those, you know, broad ec economy level activities to your like specific organization level activities in terms of hiring and, and stuff like that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, I think so we've recently been hiring for, um, you know, at, at the graduate level and, you know, really depressingly, even despite the fact. So my CIO, Tilly Franklin, you know, female, I'm managing director in charge of marketable assets woman, <laughs> our chief operating off. I know. Our chief operating officer is a, is, is a, a woman, you know, we have, a, we have really high, um, female representation in senior roles at, at the endowment office, which is fantastic. And yet when we went out to, we hosted an event recently to kind of explain like what we do at the, to a bunch of graduates. And it was like 90% guys. And it was just, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was still so frustrating. And, and I have to say one of the guys on the call actually called me out about it. And he was like, look, look, you and your, you, know, you and your CIO are, you know, founded this charity. And yet everybody on this call is a guy. It's like, yeah, I know. There's tons of work we have to do. We still have a long way to go. <laughs> Ugh, <I don't> know. <laughs> well, we want to do so, the work with yay. you. I think I think before we let you go, we I want to like get a website so that we can like direct people to to this not for profit. Um, I, I also oh, just want to mention like I, I've seen some pretty thoughtful CIOs lately that are like, look, there is a a softer demand for women and people of color first time funds. And so there like, there's an argument to be made that there's almost like an arbitrage opportunity that like capital like Sloan, you know, this is going out to find talent to help. Like you're going to be able to, you know, negotiate a better deal or get access, get a bigger commitment or something until these markets kind of normalize into that 50, 50. Um, and so maybe there's like the, the financial logic on the one hand that like might get some more CIOs out there looking to kind of capture that return opportunity. But also I think this is partly why we spend so much time focusing on long-term investing where it's not like the, you know, high frequency trading algorithms where like it's completely blind to, you know, gender and, and diversity taking a long-term view means having a diverse perspective and, and kind of spotting threats and then figuring out how to absorb those threats and then responding and recovering. And that's the life cycle of a long-term investor where that diversity is so much more needed. Anyway, one random thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like no, that I... was a mic drop. I feel like that was a mic chuck. <laughs> Like somebody's like wants to take my mic and chuck it. Now. This mean, is like the opposite. They're like, turn his mic off. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
no, I'll be serious now. I promise. Um, no, um, listen. So th- you look. I, I think um, a couple things you were saying in there, and I will pick like just draw two really important things. I think. Well, first of all, thank you for the, allowing me to plug the charity. The charity is called Gain UK, and, yeah. or Gain, and the website's gainuk.org. And we have a ton of resources and, and, and mailing lists, but you know, recommended readings and other resources. And we host tons and tons of websites webcasts and podcasts that um you know we'd encourage any anyone to look at frankly and been you know targeting most a lot of times just young women but um and then the other thing you're saying about in terms of you know there's this whole financial community like what it, it, you know sloan you're starting your own fund i think and like i referenced this bloomberg article about these amazing women launching these these hedge funds you know i think it's fantastic i'm so happy to see that and i remember having a conversation with an old boss of mine, it's got to be like 15 years ago. And she was launching her, her own fund in, in the States. And, um, you know, she was, it was, it was unheard of as a woman to be launching a, you know, a, a concentrated equity portfolio. And I'm just so excited to see more and more women taking the initiative and, and putting their flags in the ground. I think it's going to be great. And I, I genuinely think as capital allocators, with genuinely long-term investment horizons, we can kind of say, like, start sowing the seeds of like the next generation and the one after that. I think it's a really exciting movement. So me too. So there. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I met with a CIO earlier this week who was like, I don't meet with uh, anyone who's not a diverse asset manager. Um, And she was like, it saves me a ton of time. Uh, you know, so the, the benefits are manifold. Um, thank you so much for, uh, thank you coming on. to. No, it's been so much fun. Thanks, thanks so Amber. much for having me. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Really great appreciate to see your time. You. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye. Oh man. <laughs> She's such an inspiration. Yeah. Honestly. Well, like, and, you know, um, and a real like endurance champion coming on at like, you know, 6 PM, uh, you know, her time to, True, you know, on a Friday. On a Friday, uh, you know, th- if we ever get her back, it's fun to talk about her two experiences. One being like a direct investor at a large sovereign fund, and the other being like an investor in funds. Yeah, at an at an endowment, right? Yeah. Two very different muscles, but like both in like the pursuit of long term return. And you know, she she just has like all the right experiences to like think about what is the future of long term investing and. And then, like, how do we solve the problems that, like, she's working on around, you know, diversity and gender? It's awesome. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, you know, it's a, a, a kind of a rare compliment of, um, you know, kind of, of experiences. And, you know, I can already see, like, the, you know, being hard on my own performance as a direct investor, <laughs> uh, you know, would, you know, I mean, just over the course of the fir- the, the first couple of months, it's been, like, you know, a, a really illuminating experience. Everyone says performance measurement is hard. Uh, you know, yes, but like the, but yeah, anyway, um, I guess that's a good segue into our, uh, building stuff is hard. Oh, uh, thing. yes, it is hard. Yeah. Do we have a thud or is there, is oh, there yeah, a, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a media. Um, what was my thud? I think this is the thud. I just hear clicking. Okay, I don't know what the hell that was. <laughs> Shut it down.
I, I mean, that that's our... Uh... <laughs> we promised no technical difficulties, Sloan. Hey, I, I mean, in the last one, I promised Actually, one technical difficulty per show. Uh... Okay, that's true. <laughs> and technically, that's not a technical difficulty. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's a, that's like, I have, that's human error. Yeah. I've mislabeled my sound effects and, uh, you know, I think anyway, uh, anyway, what's your hard thing this week? Um, you know, I'm going to go with, uh, like, you know, funny as it sounds, um, just getting situated in my office. Um, like the, you know, I, um, like have been kind of re, you know, calibrating my home office environment. And um, the big thing that I did recently, because as has been previously established, I'm a satire of myself, um, is I, I switched to a uh, one of those kneeling chairs. Um, oh my God, they still do those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on, I'm on it right now. Um, and like, oh it, I, I will say it, I, my skeleton is feeling it every single day. Like I, I, I've been spending positively. It's a positive feeling. It is, and it is. I mean, it's like it basically turns the day to day experience of sitting in your chair into a workout. Uh, Interesting. It's like the it's like the ball concept. Yeah, it's like the ball concept exactly. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think I am you know a stereotypical queer in that I'm cap- you know incapable of sitting in a chair normally. So. Yeah, it's a really well suited strategy for me, but um, definitely been waking up in pain. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing about the kneel chair vis-a-vis the ball, the ball like sets you up for a lot of hijinks. Yeah. You know, like sure. I had a ball for a bit because I got this bad back and I, you know, there was a little bit of razzing in the office. Like as you're about to sit down on the ball, somebody kicks the ball out mm. from underneath you and then you're sitting on the ground. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I can I, I get the vibe of wanting the core strength, but not wanting to sit on the ball. So good for you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we'll see how this uh, this progresses. What's been hard for you uh, in the last little bit? Not sleeping. Oh, and sick. so this. Yeah. You know, I find when like this is like building stuff is hard segment. I, I like I unfortunately have gotten into this routine where like I'll roll over in bed around like one thirty or two. And like when I, I find if I'm like really working through a hard problem in my head or like I'm afraid, which has, seems to happen all the time, like I'm going to screw something up um, in one of these projects, it finds its way into my brain. Like, mm. you know, it's like you're like and, and you can all it's almost like in real time, like you're like, don't think about that. Don't think about yeah, that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you like literally can feel the adrenaline flow in through your body and you're like, oh, shit, now I'm up for 90 minutes. Yeah. Right. And that, that just keeps happening to me. And, and I, you know, if anybody out there has any advice on how to prevent the, uh, the, the hard things from popping into my brain in the middle of the night, I am, I'm losing, you know, every week, probably like three hours of sleep, just middle of the night trying to solve some problem. Yeah. It's frustrating. Uh, I, I had to like categorically prohibit myself from looking at, uh, any of my spreadsheets or anything like that after 10 PM, because it, mm. it wound up like just having that happen and I, you know there's I, I don't think there's a good solution unfortunately yeah not unless you're you know i doing like a really hard workout that day or something like getting mm. to get yourself extra tired but for me it's like if something's really scary and hard and work like it it'll creep in especially when you have that quiet of the bed like i have two kids you guys have met henry and be on the show yeah uh you know so life is crazy and then like you're quiet in bed it's like your brain is like okay finally we can think about some of this stuff and your body's like can we not 
Can we yeah. not think about this stuff? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Come on, I all I need <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, that, yeah, that's very Ooh. relatable. Um, melatonin, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, I take my kids melatonin. They got some melatonin in the gummy form. Mm. Those are melatonin gummies. I promise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not, I, <laughs> I mean, hey, edibles work for some people for for going to bed. True, too. CBD, yeah. CBD, baby, that's legit. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll know if uh, your sleeping strategy has has you know used that by you know like the <laughs> it's like Ashby Monk comes out and is like yeah you know you need to invest in cannabis like yeah maybe like twenty five percent CBD <laughs> sponsored by CBD. Yep, yep. But you know, I mean. Another elegant transition to the Dear Ashby. Yeah. Um, the Dear Ashby segment of the show. This is where we take questions from listeners, uh, which includes you. Um, you know, not you, Ashby, but you, the listener. Mm. Um, but you wouldn't know if I was asking myself questions because they're anonymous, I believe. Yes, they are. They are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so as far as you know, these are half mine. Are you saying that the emails that I get from like, you know, uh, sleepless man, one twenty five at gmail.com are, <laughs> it's me. Yeah. Like, uh, well, I mean the good of you to come on, come forward with that. Um, you know, but yeah, how does Ashby write such great books? <laughs> yeah. I mean, where could I buy Ashby's books today? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly not amazon.com. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, the first question is actually from me, uh, oh, shit. you know, and, uh, like it's in response to our listener survey where, you know, we learned, um, that we need to do a better job gaslighting our guests. Uh, somebody literally said that. Yes. Yeah. Like, so my question to you is how does one learn to be better at gaslighting? Sloan, I admit, I'm glad that you asked that question based on the survey because I was like, should I interpret this that people think I'm good at gaslighting? <laughs> and I, I was like trying to like fully understand gaslighting. I was like, this, as best I know, this is like lying to people to yeah. change, like, like try to change their reality. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. It's like, Oh no. Like January 6th was a false flag operation. Like yeah, it was that's Antifa. gaslighting. It was Antifa. Yeah, yeah. It was Antifa false flag. And yes, like Trump's inauguration was the most attended inauguration of all time. Like, gaslighting right yep. like obviously we have the pictures like am i living in you know a simulation i don't understand how this is possible um so but i you know in thinking about that i i, I think to gaslight properly i think you kind of have to have some contempt for the people you're talking to <laughs> you know you have to see them as pretty stupid yeah otherwise why would you think you could get away with lying to them like and so I'm real bad at gaslighting. I truly believe that like the work we're doing on the free money pod is about like fixing some big problems in capitalism and helping unlock capital through like, you know, changing how pension funds invest, like all the good stuff. And, and so like, I don't find myself ever in one of those situations where like I'm purposefully telling big lies. Yeah. But I'm looking for a moment in my, <laughs> like, 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 is it, is it when I'm like not being fully like, detailed in speeches to students where it's like pensions are great to work for you guys should you know you should all go work for pension funds you know like if i was really honest i'd be like go work for pension funds for about two years and then go get a different job you yeah, know? yeah yeah and then yeah um, and make sure you invest in therapy along the way Exactly. Yeah. Like <laughs> make sure that you've got your melatonin ready for the sleepless nights. 
Um, how about you? Like, are you gaslighting people? I don't think so. Uh, you know, like when I when I saw this, like I was thinking about, you know, examples I've seen of asset managers gaslighting people over the years, um, you know, which is like, yeah. that's a well-established genre. Of, that's uh, a really good point. You know, like kind of, I mean, there was one asset manager that um, I remember our, our friend uh, Preston McSwain wrote about this for uh, Enterprising Investor nine years ago or something like that, um, you know, where they had sort of created this thing where they were like, you know, actually active management outperforms the index. Uh, yeah. You know, and uh, like 98% of our funds are doing, are, you know, and in order to do that, they simply added back all their fees. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, yeah. I think that that genre of gaslighting is a, a skill that I have fortunately not developed. Um, yeah. You no, know, we'll hold you accountable never to develop that skill. I plan not to. I plan not to. In fact, I think that maybe what we would look at the venture capital funds as their companies fail. And by the way, like most companies that venture capital funds invest in fail, yeah. like fail to achieve the objective at least. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the model of venture capital is like three companies of the 40 you invest in drive all the return. It's kind of a power law distribution. Yeah. Um, but go on their websites and see if you can find any of the companies that failed on their logos, right? Mm, yeah. Like they're gone so fast. It's almost like they didn't exist. And like, so, so in my mind, that's, that's kind of like gaslighting. It's like almost seeming to like suggest that they're just perfect, that they, that this is a strategy where this fund is the best and that they're the ones picking all the top investors. Mm. Um, Whereas the reality is like most of the time they're wrong, even Sequoia, right? Like get it wrong a lot, but you would never know it by like engaging in their website. It's like a completely different universe. Well, and like the difference between the thesis of, I mean, especially when we're talking about like investing in like FinTech or whatever, um, you know, the difference between the thesis, which is often like we're, you know, pioneering financial inclusion for people and doing this, that, and the other thing, you know, and then the outcome, which is often like we created a scammy little app where you can buy cryptocurrency, yeah. uh, you know, it, like, and, you know, the rhetoric remains the same. The, the position drifts towards like a pretty, uh, you know, uh, like, I guess, mm -hmm. extractive approach pretty quickly when, you know, it becomes clear that that's the way to do it. And that, and that winds up being the position that drives the portfolio return. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I plan to not develop that skill set. Uh, and uh, although maybe we could develop a scammy little app to do stuff, That'd be fun. <laughs> you know, like Scams no, up. no, there'll be no fees, you know, but we will front run everything you do, you know, like there's going to be some sneaky way that we monetize. So we, yeah, we yeah, just yeah. clarify, yeah. but they'll, they'll be free to trade with plenty of front running by free money, <laughs> invest vegan portfolio. <laughs> Yeah, by the by the uh, you know our, our our trading desk, like you know, I'll get my cats setting up, uh, <laughs> you know, trading ahead of everyone else. Um, so the next oh. question is: Are we taking the metaverse seriously now, or what? Oh, like not because Facebook changed its name. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> um, I mean, did you take crypto seriously because they tried to create a crypto asset? What no. was oh. Facebook's crypto asset? Yeah, I, nope. yeah, yeah. Well, it was called like, I don't even remember what it was called. That's a great point. Yeah, like, can any of you out there name the Facebook crypto asset? No, like, wow. um, 
Yeah. My kids, my kids live in the Roblox. Mm. They love that Roblox. So that's yep. getting closer. Um, look, I, I, I interpreted this a little bit of a different way. Like I'm still not convinced we're not in the metaverse right now. <laughs> Like, let's go deep. Let's go deep, Sloan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow it all the way down. Yeah, yeah you're, you're you're really like you know fulfilling your mandate as the Silicon Valley uh, portion. Of <laughs> but like, go back, go back to the Big Bang and like the expansion of the universe, and like tell me that that doesn't sound like a computer turning on. Okay, mm. there was this thing called leverage, where like the universe expanded so fast they needed like new math to figure out how the hell that worked. And like 13 billion years later, like we don't even know what's on the other side of the end of the universe. It's just nothing. Mm. To me, it's like some of these questions, when you really get into the, like the astral physics, you're like, this is too freaking weird. This is like, this is so weird yeah. that we are living here on this ball. Um, yeah. So in that sense, like, you know, it's to me, it's like as likely that this is some like massive simulation as like we're going to end up in a simulation, you know? Mm, yeah. Speaking of which, we got the Matrix coming out this month. Hell yes, we do. Very Dude, exciting. I think it's called Resurrections. Yep. And I know that we're not getting paid, but this episode is sponsored by oh, yep. Resurrections. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, like, I mean, the Wachowski sisters are like, you know, truly, I mean, first of all, you know, I, like, yeah. I, I would be doing a disservice to, you know, like the queer audience out here by not mentioning that the Matrix is a trans narrative. Yeah. Uh, you know, where, oh, you take a pill and then all of a sudden you see the way things really are. Huh. That's so weird. Uh, yes. You know, like day to day, you're like going through your life and, you know, you're just like, oh, maybe I'll conform. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. There's something more. I can be my real yes. self. Um, almost like the movie was written by trans women. Almost. Almost. Yeah, uh, it would be fascinating. Apparently, the like sneak peek r reviews I've read, which are always dodgy, are that it's quite good. I Yeah, I mean, it better be. And, and even if it's not, I'm still going to watch it. I mean, the, oh, third, yeah, the sure. third Matrix movie was terrible. and It like, was horrifically bad. But yeah. maybe this will explain why it was so bad and make it good. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, duty. like, I, I'm just excited to have the Matrix back in the zeitgeist and, like, see Keanu Reeves kicking ass. Oh, I love the Keanu. Yeah. I love that guy. Yeah. There was a picture of him with a Christmas tree on top of his Porsche making the rounds on the internet uh, yesterday <laughs> or a couple days ago. And, and like, you know, what a vibe. Um, oh, I got to check that out. The uh, last question for uh, this segment, and then we'll get into the garden tip, is we're near the end of the year. What are we you are. looking forward to in 2022? Oh, Wow. Uh, 2022 will be my kind of first full year of running this new research center at Stanford focused yep. on long-term investing. Um, we've ordered our business cards, so they unfold. Uh, and so you can go back to the past show to hear how, why we need that. Um, and <laughs> Spoiler then, alert, uh, it's because Ashby's but, title is a paragraph long. <laughs> it's a paragraph. Yes. Uh, I'm splitting my time between North Korea and Stanford. Where <laughs> titles, titles have to go onto another sheet. Uh, they're so long. Uh, but my next book will probably come out. I have to deliver a manuscript of the book. I'm, my next, my follow-up to The Technologized Investor with mm. Dane Rook, um, which will really dig into three key big topics, knowledge management, 
um, what, what Dane and I call portfolio navigation, which is about like, how do you model your portfolio into the future and portfolio resilience, which is, you know, what is, what is actually the objective of ESG investing? Mm. So like most of the big asset owners out there don't have actual clarity. If you're like, Hey, why are you doing ESG? There'll be some hand wavy, like save the world sustainability language. Yep. Our whole thesis is like, actually what you should, you should have a clear focus. And one of those focuses could be resilience, which is a very established concept in the world. Anyway, that book will kind of combine knowledge management, navigation and resilience into a single thread, mm. um, obviously with like technology at the core. And that'll, you know, that manuscript is due, I'm petrified to say, in Q1. Oof. So yeah, that's terrifying. Um, I'm looking forward to that process being over and then it coming out. That's really exciting. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. How about you? What, let's have, before we leave it, what are you looking forward to doing? Um, well, you know, honestly, like I am looking forward to doing a full year of invest vegan. I mean, you know, um, yeah. like I, my, my business cards are only a single page. Uh, we got to fix that. Yeah. yeah. Gotta, I mean, well, they do have pictures on the back of them. So, okay. you know, like I, Beautiful. It's, yeah, I've got like some custom art that I, uh, I, like I had someone, I commissioned somebody to draw a, a bunch of vegetables ringing the bell on the New York stock exchange. Yeah. Um, and that's on some, that back of some of my business cards. So it's not, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's very cute. Um, but yeah, like I, I'm just excited to, you know, really get like past the, you know, the, I, I guess the, the precarity period in starting this firm, you know, and get yeah. into the, the, the point where, um, you know, I can really start, you know, th thinking three, five, 10 years out into the future, you know, because like, you know, right now I'm like out here trying to, you know, get past a hundred Twitter followers so that I can like get into vegan yeah. Twitter and, 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 you know, get some, get some. I did like out. that tweet you did asking to get past a hundred. I don't yep. know if I retweeted it. Shall I retweet it? I mean, I, I'm already past a hundred. So, you know, I, <laughs> I, I uh, maybe I got to ask for, <laughs> maybe I got to get, get past a thousand now, you know, I mean, I guess that's the, oh, got to move the goalpost. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, most importantly, Exciting. what do you look forward to in your garden for 2022? I mean, maybe maybe that's the secret to, to solving our tech things. We'll do the sound effects manually. Ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, gardens. Yeah, so I have actual advice, which I have collected from a friend of mine during Thanksgiving. Um Apparently, if you're doing box hedges, mm. okay, you cannot trim them at a vertical. You have to create a A-frame. It can still have the flat top, but the sides all have to have a little angle so that the lower leaves can get the sun. Huh. And you don't have the like erosion of the lower half of your box hedge looking is starting to look like a tree. Yeah, to maintain that full body at the bottom, it has to be at an angle, so that everybody, every little leaf gets the right amount of sun, and then it gets full. And you can't really tell when you're looking at these things unless you're like, you've got an eye for it. But now that I've told you, listeners, that very good box edges are cut at a bias like that, you won't be able to unsee it. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I know there's a lot to box hedges. Like, um, oh yeah, the, the... there was, I went and like Googled to see if this was true, and it was like, holy shit, there's like 150 other tips oh, I could yeah. have delivered. Well, yeah, and, and <laughs> like, I mean, in the UK, I think they're dealing with 
some kind of because uh, I mean you know the box hedge is like a kind of uh, hallmark hedgerow. Well, yeah, it's yeah, it's of, of the formal garden. Um, yeah, exactly. But like, I, I think some invasive pest has just been destroying them. Oh my um, gosh, you know, it's devastating. Yeah, yeah, whenever I watch my Gardener's World on BBC, there's like, oh yes, well, if you're dealing with the blight on the box hedge, like we've been. And and been suffering from the consequences. Oh, man. <laughs> There's a I number of substitutes. We, I love it when we do accents. It's my favorite. It's my favorite part of every show. When we attempt an accent. We have no. It wasn't bad. It wasn't, wasn't bad. bad. Yeah, I mean, like no. I, 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 you know, through iteration. Actually. 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 Well, if That's you my cut, favorite if you British cut word. Your box heads, hedges with a bias, uh, <laughs> such that the light can penetrate down. This area, <laughs> this area of the box hedge. Area is my favorite posh British word. Area. Oh, yeah. Area. <laughs> uh, yes, we can make fun of them because they're so much better than us. Uh, we do love you guys out there. Yeah, no matter so how know. no matter how funny you talk. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think that about Whew. does it for us this week. Does it? Do you have anything else you well, want to say? Did you have a tip? Oh yeah, oh, did, I, was uh, your tip my tip? I don't know. Do I have a I need a tip. tip. Um, you know, <laughs> you forgot. I forgot about garden tips. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it live. Um, I I've been taking green onions, which are you know those okay. little scallions, kind of. Yeah. Um, and I have now like two little like jars full of water, and I've just been like farming them in my hydroponic office. style. Hydroponic style, yeah. And uh, wow. you know, I think for for those of us who, who don't really have space for a box hedge in our in our apartments, um, you know, yeah. I, the I, I would yeah. encourage you to try it because, like, I actually was able to just trim these up and make some kimchi with them the other day. Um, oh my god, that sounds actually pretty rad. So you got cabbage going with that, or what? what uh, well, mean? the cabbage, like, I, I bought at the co-op. Uh, That's okay. You know, yeah. Like sometimes yeah. I do have to engage in the economy. Um, yeah, you got to. Yeah. You know. But yeah, I was like, oh shit, I need um I need some some green onions. Wait, I will go to my office farm and cut them right up. Um it's and amazing. yeah, they, they grow great in a window. They don't need nutrition. You can and you can just keep growing and growing and growing them. Um, you know, so next time you get green onions, don't don't throw them out. Toss them in a in a, in a little uh, you know, old jar and, and and see what you get. Yeah, well, speaking of my alien backyard, the alien tomato plants, just to the right of the alien tomato plants are green onions that when I planted were like the size of like largest straws. Mm -hmm. And now they are the size of like wiffle ball bats. What? Yeah, I'm gonna have to take a picture and send it to you. That's There's nuts. something very weird about this little garden in my backyard. Yeah, that's like, I mean, you. I, I think that you're, you might be on like a Native American burial site or something. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I think I saw my dead dog come back to life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the, there's a pet cemetery back there. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like my garden grows great, but also like, you know, I just, uh, there's this man that just shows up in my house. Yeah, from, exactly. you know, for, like whenever I can't sleep, it like, you know, he oh. hangs out with me on the couch and I just don't, you know. Oh, I can't wait. And I'll tell you one thing, plug for our next episode. I can't wait to get a real crypto genius on here yes. next time. Yes. Building a company, built his own token, and there's an investment management angle. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. I'm so excited about that, too. And then we got to do our, our year in review episode, you know. Uh, we do. At some point. So, we got to um, figure out what happened this year and then review it. Ooh. 
Um, yeah, well, we got our work cut out. Um, but uh, we love you guys, and we'll catch we love you on another episode. Bye. Bye. I'm looking like money, 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 money,